We love stories. One of the reasons I wanted uh, you to hear from Jordan and one of the reasons we're going to continue to do this throughout the, s- the summer uh, is we are a people that absolutely, we love stories. Uh, we're encouraged by them, we're challenged by them, uh, blessed, convicted, inspired by them. I, I really hope as you heard just, and you just heard a snapshot of Jordan's story, that you were inspired just with the simple thought and question, gosh, what might God want to do with me? What might God want to do with me? Because it just started with a desire. So Jordan, thank you for sharing, man. Uh, and again, I love hearing stories. Uh, and I'm excited about what we're doing in Acts chapter 7 today, because we're walking through a phenomenal story. Now, before I share that story, uh, I'm going to quiz you uh, to see if this is true. If we actually really love stories, how well do you know the storyline of, uh, say, Rocky? Where's my picture of Rocky? There he is. If you were to ask me, Michael Davis, what's your favorite movie? I, Rocky. I don't even have to think about it. It takes all of a half a second to say my favorite movie is Rocky. Well, which one? Well, one, two, three, four, five, and then Rocky Balboa, the whole thing. And it's now available in Blu-ray, the box set. You should get it. If you're at all familiar with the story of Rocky, even if you've only seen it maybe once or heard story, it's the underdog story, right? Rocky won, Apollo Creed. He's the champ, and he's looking to give someone a shot at the title. Why? Well, because the crowds don't chant for him anymore. So he wants to find favor in the crowd's eyes. So he finds Rocky Balboa. Rocky had no business fighting the champ, but he takes the champ 15 rounds. And at the end of the fight, it is a decision, split decision, that goes in favor of Apollo Creed. Hence, Rocky II. Then we got the rematch between Apollo Creed and Rocky Balboa. And it comes down to the last few seconds. They both get knocked down, but Rocky Balboa gets up. Then we go to Rocky III. Rocky's starting to think he's all that, all impressed with the money and the fame. And so... He gets sent, Mr. T, a.k.a. Clubber Lang, and Clubber Lang destroys Rocky Balboa. End of story. But no, no, Rocky, he's the underdog. He gets back up, and he takes out Clubber Lang. Now, in the mid-'80s, we're in the height of the Cold War, so Sylvester Stallone, being sensitive to the Cold War, introduces Ivan Drago in Rocky IV. And at the end of his Oscar award-winning speech in Rocky IV, he says, if I can change, you can change. He can all change. He gets all excited about he just destroyed the man that no one could beat, the, the tall Russian, uh, Ivan Drago. Rocky V wasn't a great movie, but it's part of the... <laughs> and I think he knew that. That's why he came out with Rocky Balboa to kind of close the, the series out. But I don't even have to like think of notes. I just know that. I know the story. I know the characters. How about this movie? How well do you know this story? Lord of the Rings. Well, a few of you are like, oh, definitely better than Rocky. No, not even close. Rocky, 1976, best picture. Thank you. Lord of the Rings is such a complex story, but you know the story so well. You've got humans and halflings and dwarves and elves and other people. I don't know even how they got to be the way they are. And there's just so much complexity in the story, but you love the story. Why? Well, why, why do we love stories like Rocky or Lord of the Rings or whatever the story might be? 
Because at some level, we love story because we like to insert our story into their story. We find a character or a theme that we can somehow relate to. Or we like to put ourselves there. Man, if that was me, this is exactly what I would have done. We are a story, narrative-driven people. Now, Louis Giglio wrote a great book called I Am Not, But I Know I Am. And he said this about story. He said, life is a tale of two stories. One finite and frail, and the other eternal and enduring. The tiny one, the story of us, is brief as the blink of an eye. Yet somehow, our infatuation with our own little story and our determination to make it as big as, as, as we possibly can blinds us to the massive God story that surrounds us on every side. I like how he just simplifies and says, you have a choice. You can either choose your story, a small story, a finite story, a story that will not last, or you can trade up to say, I want to be part of a bigger story, an eternal story, an epic story known as the story of God. And we have to make a choice. Which story would you be part of? He goes on to say, we can choose to cling to starring roles in the little bitty stories of us, or we can exchange our fleeting moment in the spotlight for a supporting role in the eternally beautiful epic that is the story of God. Now, I share that with you because when I look at Stephen, and this is the man that we're going to continue to look at today, we, we were introduced to him last week, but we're looking at Stephen today again. Stephen, if you forgot, he was the first man that was murdered uh, for having faith in Jesus Christ. He was the first Christian martyr. His story, it's compelling, it's inspiring, but it teaches us, it teaches me, and hopefully teaches you one major theme, that Jesus is worthy of all of you all of the time. If I were to sum up Stephen's life, it was Jesus is worthy. In life, I will give myself to him. In death, I will give myself to him. But Stephen had to make a choice of which story would he want to be part of. The little itty-bitty story of him that no one would ever remember Or would he choose to be part of a greater story, a grander story? Not where he was the star, but where he played a supporting role in the story of God. His choice, he chose, this is Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? Are these accusations true? Again, if you weren't here last week, what Stephen was being accused of... uh, was blasphemy. Now, that might not sound like, what's the problem, what's the big deal? In that time, if you were accused of blasphemy, you were sentenced to death. So, right here in Acts 7-1, I see a decision needs to get made. In Acts 7-1, the question is simply, uh, are these accusations true? Now, he's got the choice. He could choose to deny even knowing who Jesus is, where he could explain to his accusers who Jesus actually is. Now, insert yourself into this story. What would you do? How would you handle this situation? Knowing that if you said, you know what, I'm with Jesus, I'm for Jesus, I'm all about Jesus, it will cost you your life. And by the way, this is not like by lethal injection. This would be death by stoning. 
having small and large rocks thrown at you until you are crushed to death. So if you say, yes, you're with Jesus, the choice, you're, 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 you're saying, I'm willing to die. So what would you do in this moment? If you choose, you know what? I don't feel like enduring all of this pain, problem, persecution. Uh, the choice that gets made right there is a simple choice of, I'm choosing my story. Because I want to preserve my name, my character, my reputation, and I just want to preserve my story. But for Stephen, what I love about Stephen is he, he says, you know what? I don't care about my name, my fame, my reputation, my character, because I'm part of a bigger, grander epic called the story of God. Now, we're looking at Acts 7. In reality, this could have been two verses. It could have been the verse we've already read, and Acts chapter 7, verse 2 could have read, nope, I did not say those things. Could have just ended the whole story right there. Stephen walks away. Nope, I didn't say those things. I don't know who this guy is. I'm not with him. I'm not for him. And it ends his story. But what I love about what Stephen does is Acts 7 is all about Stephen's choice to say, you know what, I see myself in a bigger part of the story of God. Now, before I read Acts uh, chapter 7, or at least parts of Acts chapter 7, I want to just ask you the question of how well do you actually know the story of God? I, I promise you, if I asked you what your favorite movie was, and you were to say X movie, you'd be able to tell me the characters, the characters' issues, struggles, hang-ups, disappointments, hurts, You'd be able to tell me probably the main, the main theme or the plot lines carried throughout the film. Like if I asked you what your favorite movie is, you'd know what the story is. But the question is, how well do you know the story of God? Would you be able to articulate to others not only the characters within the story, but the main storyline that is weaved throughout the whole story? And not only do you know the story, but do you know how to apply the story to the story of your life? You know how to apply God's grand, great, epic, beautiful story to how you live every single day. Now, the question is, why is knowing the story of God, why does it matter? Why is it so important? And I wrote it down like this. It's in knowing and understanding the story of God that we can know and understand God and how we are to relate with God in the world around us. Meaning, if you don't know, are not familiar with the story of God, you will be utterly confused as to your own story. It's another way of saying life will just not make sense. Who you are, your purpose, your value, your worth, what you're doing and why, it just won't make sense apart, divorced from knowing and understanding and living out the story of God. I like how um, uh, theologian, pastor, author uh, Michael Lawrence, this is a very long quote, but stick with me, it's worth it. The Bible as a whole is best understood as a single story. A story about a king, a kingdom, and the king's relationship with his people. What we need to understand that this narrative story is intended by God to envelop us and redefine us. It provides us with a way of understanding reality that is different from the narratives that our fallen culture provides. The narrative, again, narrative story of Scripture is not meant to be merely inspiring so that we can cope 
with the difficult reality of our lives. No, the narrative of Scripture was inspired in order to let us know what reality really is. The story doesn't just interpret us, it exercises authority over us. It's not merely a descriptive account of reality. The narrative of Scripture has a normative or authoritative function in our lives. So the story of God is not just some story that you dust off once in a while and just read to be encouraged or inspired when you're just having a really rough go of it. The story of God is the story that shapes you, redefines you. It's where we understand meaning and mission and purpose and value and worth. So how well do you know the story of God? The heart of Acts 7, Stephen wanted his listeners, and that's a polite way of saying he wanted his accusers um, to know the story. And if you look at Acts chapter 7, there's 60 verses in Acts chapter 7. 52 of them are Stephen's response to the question of, are these things, are these accusations true? And again, we can't cover all 52 or 60 verses in Acts chapter 7. So what I'd like to do is just walk through Stephen's response. What is he ultimately trying to challenge his accusers with? What is he trying to get them to think about and consider? Because again, he doesn't answer them by saying, no, these are not true. He doesn't answer them by saying, yeah, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. He doesn't defend himself. What Stephen actually does is he presents them, not for the first time, but he presents them again with, let me remind you of the story of God. And his hope in sharing the story of God with them was that they would see the story of God as really about Jesus. And that his accusers would no longer be accusers, but they would be brothers. Because Stephen had recognized that there is a king, his name is Jesus. He is the author, he is the hero of the story, and that's what he wanted these men to see. Now, as we go through Acts 7, again, I'm just going to cover three major themes that Stephen is trying to highlight here. And really, his three main themes is he's attacking what I would just call sacred cows. You guys know what a sacred cow is? According to our very reliable Wikipedia, sacred cow could be defined like this. Something that is regarded by some people with such respect and reverence that they do not like it being criticized by anyone in any way. And so what Stephen does in his response is, I'm going to point out to you the sacred cows that you are holding to. And it's these sacred cows that you have that are blinding you to the incredible story of God and what God has done. And this is the hard reality about sacred cows. Whatever your sacred cows are, if they are not dealt with and repented of, they will completely blind you to the reality of who God is, what God is like. They will ultimately blind you and prevent you from coming to God. And so this is what Stephen does. He points out to these religious leaders who are accusing him of blasphemy, their sacred cows. Sacred cow number one, the land. Now, he plays this sacred cow out in 34 verses, Acts chapter 2, 
uh, or chapter 7, verses 2 through 36. Just reading a few verses here. This was Stephen's reply. Brothers, fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Now, how is that land a sacred cow? Well, popular opinion was that God gave special spiritual privileges to those living in the promised land, to those Jews, Israelites, that were living in the land of Canaan or the land of Palestine, uh, that they had special privileges, and their privileges were based on because of the land, the geography that they occupied. And what Stephen is going to do in the next 30 verses, 34 verses, is argue, you guys are dead wrong. You have this sacred cow called land, and you're completely missing the point. It's not about the land. His point is, it's not about the land. The blessing is knowing and being known by God. And he starts with the story of Abraham, specifically that God revealed himself to Abraham, blessed Abraham, and he blessed Abraham well before Abraham ever even entered into or stepped foot on what would be known as the land of Canaan or the promised land. To make this point even further, Stephen explains uh, in verses 9 through 16 that God blessed his people, the 12 sons of Jacob, not in the promised land, but in the, where? In the land of Egypt. And so he tells them the story. Don't forget what happened to God's people. They were suffering in the land of Egypt, but God raised up a redeemer in Joseph to save the people from uh, save the people of God from a very severe famine. Again, his point, it's not about the land. The blessing is knowing being known by God. Again, to drive his point home even further, Stephen explains in verse 17 through 36 how God took care of Moses and the people of God outside the promised land. Again, you see God blessing Abraham. You see God blessing the people of Israel outside the land uh, known as the promised land in the land of Egypt. If you have a Bible, open up. I'm going to read a few verses out of Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 17. This is Stephen trying to drive home the point. It's not about the land, and he uses Moses as an example. At, this t- at the time, uh, as the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But when a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph, this king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At the time, Moses was born a beautiful child in God's eyes. And skip down to verse uh, 30. Forty years later, and Stephen continues to walk down through who Moses is, where Moses lived, how Moses got trained up. And it says, 40 years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses shook with terror, and he did not dare look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. He's in in Mount Sinai region. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. 
So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. Now, I read those verses uh, because this is Stephen's response. Again, the question was, are these accusations true? And he starts off by saying, let me tell you the story of Abraham. And then let me tell you the story about Isaac and his his sons, and Jacob and his 12 sons. And then let me tell you what further happened with Moses. Because, again, Stephen, three times in these 34 verses, is trying to drive home a simple point. Religious leaders, it is not about the land. It is about God. It is about knowing God. It is about being in relationship with God. Your sacred cow is this thing called the land, that you have to be in this land to be blessed by God. And Stephen is saying, no. Moses was blessed of God in Egypt. They were blessed and saw God do incredible things in the desert. Moses experienced his call, his commission, was way outside the promised land. That was sacred cow number one. Sacred cow number two would be something called the law. In verse 37 uh, through 43. Now, the law was what God had given to Moses as to instruct the people on how to live, how to relate with one another, but also how to relate with God. Now, the question is, how is the law, how is that a sacred cow? Well, again, popular opinion was that salvation, being made right with God, was found in observing the law. But the problem with this, no one could observe the law. Everyone was completely rebellious and did not pay attention to anything God had said. They just did their own thing. This is Acts chapter 7. And read a few verses, starting at verse 37. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Skip down to verse 39, where, uh, verse 39 through 41. It says, But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. And so they told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. And so they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing that they had made. What Stephen is trying to show his accusers is that the law, it it couldn't save anybody. Because nobody was even paying attention or being obedient to what the law had said. Moses even made clear. And you have to keep in mind in first century Judaism, they worshipped Moses. I mean, they put Moses on the pedestal. But Stephen reminds him of something Moses said himself. He said to the Israelites, God is going to raise up somebody else. God will raise up a redeemer, a prophet like himself who will do for the people what he could not do. His point, it's not about the law. Salvation is found in knowing a Savior. If you're tracking with me at all, I know this is a lot of Scripture, a lot of points to take in, but what Stephen is doing here is he's taking them point by point through their own story and trying to reveal to them, guys, what you need more than anything is not your land, is not the law, you need a Savior. And so he comes to the third sacred cow, which would be called the temple. Now, how is the temple a sacred cow? Again, popular opinion was that God is surely with us because we have the temple. 
because we have this structure, we have this building, clearly God is with us in this space. And so if we want to know God, understand God, relate to God, connect with God, we've got to go to this building. That would be as almost crazy as me saying, if you want to know God, hear God, relate to God, uh, have relation, it can only happen at 35 Olympiad. If you step outside this building, you're on your own. You're not going to know God, understand. That would be ridiculous. But the sacred cow for them was the temple. And so what Stephen does in these uh, few verses is, let me tell you just how big God is. And he says this in verse uh, 48 through 50. And he's actually quoting Isaiah. He says, however, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? Great questions that God is asking. Like, do you really think that you could outbuild what I have created? And the answer is, well, no. God doesn't just dwell in one place. It became a sacred cow for them. His point is, it's not about the temple. God is much bigger than man made things. What I love about what Stephen does here in these many verses is rather than defend himself from the false accusations of blasphemy, Stephen goes hard after their sacred cows trying to debunk them, debunk the lies they were believing. We are in good with God because we have land, we have the law, and we have the temple. He doesn't even answer whether he is actually blaspheming if, if it was true or not. He takes them through the story, and he wants them to see in the story of God, starting with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, then to, uh, to, uh, to Moses, then to the prophets. He just wants them to see that their greatest need is not going to be found in land, law, or temple, but will actually be found in the Savior Jesus. Stephen loved his accusers enough to tell them the hard things, and this is uh, the ending of his response. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, that just means their hearts are hard, and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, you might read that or, or hear that, and man, that would have been really hard for them to hear. That was a way of saying, you are doing exactly what they did. And they knew the story. They knew that the men and women of God had rejected God time and time again. And Stephen says, you're doing the exact same thing that they did. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. Again, Stephen is now accusing them. And Stephen is saying, God sent the Savior. God sent the Redeemer, the Rescuer. And not only did you reject him, you actually betrayed and killed him. Now, if you were them, how would you respond to this accusation? If someone's calling you out and saying, you know what? You've got all of these sacred cows in your life. And your sacred cows are hindering you from experiencing all that God wants to do with you and through you. You are so blind to the sacred cows 
that you, you can't even see them anymore. They are glaring, but you can't see them. If someone called you out, if someone challenged you that you were completely missing the point, that you were placing your faith in, in works or performance, if someone were to say that to you, what would be your response? Well, if you were humble, you'd be like, wow, you're right, I am. But if you're prideful, your attitude, who are you to talk to me like that? And your heart would get harder and harder. Unfortunately, this was the response of Stephen's accusers. In verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. You ever frustrated someone so much that they didn't even have words? They just started grinding their teeth at you. They were just so angry that it's like a dog snarling at you. Now, Stephen's response is like, wow, I've never seen that happen before. They were so angered, and their response is just reflective of their hearts had gotten completely hard towards God. Now, I'm not sure how you would respond to someone gnashing their teeth at you, but here's Stephen's response. Verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at their feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to get into the story of Saul next week. But Stephen says to his accusers, I totally can't even see you because I'm looking up and I see Jesus. And this is an amazing portrait of Jesus. Everywhere else in the New Testament, uh, post-Jesus ascending to, to be in heaven, you know what Jesus is doing? He's sitting. He's sitting at the right hand of God. But here in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen looks up, heavens are pulled back for a moment. He sees the glory of God, and then he sees Jesus. Not just Jesus sitting, but he sees Jesus standing. How much courage do you think what Jesus allowed him to see gave Stephen to finish strong? How much courage was just poured into Stephen when he looks up, in the moment that he's about to be stoned, he sees Jesus standing. What I love about what we see in Stephen's, the last thing we hear of Stephen is in verse 59 and 60. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know who said that? Jesus said that. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You know who said that? Jesus said that. See, Stephen decided that Jesus was worthy to be like Jesus all the time, in life, but also in death. And when he said this, he fell asleep. In life and death, Stephen was convinced that Jesus was worthy to be followed. Now, I want to finish. Uh, how do you apply this story? How do you take 60 verses? How do you take Stephen's response of not even defending himself against the accusations of blasphemy, how do we understand and apply 
his response over 52 verses. How do we apply the story of God to how we're going to live? I'm going to share with you very, very quickly. Please write these down. These three, and these three are application. This is how we can take Acts chapter 7. We can learn from it. We can be challenged by it. We can be encouraged by it. But we can also apply it to how we're going to live our lives. Number one is, is this. People need to know the story of God because the story of God is the story of Jesus. That's what Stephen does. Stephen, is this true? Did you say this? Well, hey, hey, I got something better. Let me tell you the story of God. Because the story of God is the story of Jesus. And what you need right now is Jesus. It's not about me, my reputation. What you need right now is you need to understand and know the story of God because the story of God is the story of Jesus. Now, I can't verify this, but I have to believe that Stephen had in mind as he's telling the story the exact same thing that Jesus did post-resurrection when Jesus meets some, some men and women on the Emmaus Road. And what Jesus does is exactly what Stephen just did, is he explains to them, let me tell you from Scripture, from the story of God. He says this real quick in Luke 24. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you will find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in Scripture. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have suffered all the things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And then the response from the people, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the Scriptures to us? I think we have this idea that the Scriptures are not enough. That the Scriptures are somehow not compelling enough. That the Scriptures can't do what they just said. Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us about the story of God? Didn't something happen to me as I heard someone explain to me the story of God as told in the Scriptures? How I apply Acts 7, people need to know the story of God because the story of God is the story of Jesus. Now, a, a word of caution and a word of warning. You might be able to tell the story like nobody else. You might be able to, like Stephen, articulate. Let me start with Adam, and then Noah, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve sons. Let me tell you about King David and his son Solomon. Let me tell you about the prophets. All of them explaining and pointing towards Jesus. You might be a master storyteller, but not everyone will believe it. But just because people choose not to believe should not prevent you from telling the great story of God because the great story of God is the story of Jesus. I was talking with uh, one of our elders, Zach, this week, and we're talking about the message and apologetics and stuff, and he reminded me of a quote that he had just read in the uh, book uh, called Total Church. And uh, this is a, a quote from within the book. And he said, He's an unbeliever not because Christianity is inherently implausible, but because he simply does not want to believe it. There are going to be people that simply do not believe Christianity, not because you didn't explain it well, not because you didn't love well, not because you didn't articulate it well. There will be people who simply do not believe the story of God, the Christian message, the good news of Jesus, for the sole reason they just don't 
want to believe it. So the challenge for you is to know the story, to understand the story, to apply the story to how you live, but then to pray for the men and women that are around you that God would soften their hearts so that when they hear the story, they respond not to your great storytelling ability, but they respond to the Spirit of God at work within them. Number two would be this. We must know and repent of our sacred cows. Stephen hit hard on what their sacred cows were. Land, law, and temple. It's safe to say if I pulled all 200 of you and said, does anyone have a sacred cow that is known as land? You'd be like, no. Law, probably not. Temple, definitely not. So your sacred cows might not look or sound like their sacred cows, but do not be confused. It's a good chance you have a sacred cow. It's a sacred cow, meaning that thing that you have in your life that you either look to, you either protect, you don't want to give up, you think by this, somehow, you're getting something, you're achieving, earning something. For me, as I was really wrestling, God, what, is, what are my sacred cows? The first sacred cow that, brought, that God brought to mind uh, was a sacred cow that was not new, but I see that it comes up often is the cow that I'll call the cow of performance. The belief that there are things that I can do that will somehow make God love me more. If I preach a really enthusiastic, energetic, inspirational message, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I serve, if I give, if somehow God will look at me like, dang, that Davis is impressive. Now, I know that's not true. And I want to be clear, I'm not confused. That is a lie. That is absolutely not true. But how often in my head, what I know in my head not to be true in my steps, I certainly act like it is. Or there's things that when I sin, when I'm selfish, prideful, arrogant, you name it, somehow, some way, what I've done, God is looking at me and like, you are such a disappointment. What happened to superhero over there, you big failure? And then I have to work hard. Well, maybe if I start doing more of that again, I'll get back in good. That's a sacred cow called performance. And what I love about what Jesus has done for me, what Jesus does for all of us, is he kills our sacred cows. This one for performance, great quote from uh, the Gospel Primer. says this, God has only love, compassion, and the deepest affection for me. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always seeking to work all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. All these realities hold true even when I sin. Then he goes on to say, being justified in Christ doesn't mean that God no longer sees or cares about my sin. He does see. He is grieved by my sin. But his gracious favor upon me remains utterly unchanged by my sin. No wrath is awakened in him against me because Christ has already bore it all. So I take my sacred cow called performance to Jesus, and Jesus crushes it. Why? Well, because there's nothing I can do to make Jesus love me more. There's nothing I can do to make Jesus love me less. And if I not only know that, but apply that to how I live, I don't have to go looking for acceptance, value, and worth from anybody else. Why? Well, because I have it from Jesus. And when I fail, when I fall, when I falter, It's the gospel that 
gets me back up because it's his grace that forgives me, but it's also his grace that says, let's keep going. It's his grace that transforms. What is your sacred cow? Because my challenge to you today would not just be to identify what your sacred cow is, but to say, Jesus, today I recognize, I affirm, and I repent from this sacred cow. And let Jesus do for you what you can't do. Crush that sacred cow. Number three, finish with this. Respond to the Spirit of God today, not tomorrow. Respond today. This is not the message to say, don't pay attention to the Holy Spirit, the leading of God tomorrow. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. What God is saying to you today, do it now. Do it today. You know why? Because tomorrow, what happens is when we ignore what God is speaking to us today, our hearts just get a little bit harder as we go. And this was Stephen's accusation. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And today, I just wanted to finish by telling you, respond to the Spirit of God today. Right now, in this moment, in this time. Why? Because God's speaking to you. For some of you, it might be simply you had no idea the story of God and how your story fit in. Some of you maybe had no idea that you are loved by God, created by God to know God, to experience His great love. Some of you may have no idea that God's got a plan, a purpose, a mission for you. That your value and worth and identity and security does not come from the things of this world. So if God is inviting you to Him, respond today. Some of you, you hear the word sacred cow and you're like, dang it, I don't want to deal with my sacred cow today. Do it today. Allow the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, to crush your sacred cow.